This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes, until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to The Rest is Entertainment with me, Marina Hyde. And me, Richard Osman. Hello, Marina. Hello, Richard. It's nice to be back. It's lovely to be back, isn't it? I didn't think we'd make a second show. It's incredible. I feel like I've won now, whatever happens. The podcast lottery. Lots of things to talk about today. You're going to be talking a little bit about what's up with Marvel. I'm going to talk a little bit about Robbie Williams, David Beckham and Ronnie O'Sullivan, those documentaries. What are we talking about third? Something I think people wouldn't think we're talking about. about a recently deceased Henry Kissinger. It may seem surreal that it's appearing in the entertainment podcast, but wear with us and it will become clear. Exactly that. And then lots of recommendations about what to watch, what to read, all sorts of things. And a little something from you, I hope, on what to do when your format hits an emergency. Yes, Strictly this weekend, Nigel pulled out at the worst possible time, if you know what I mean. Uh, And uh, so I'm going to talk about format emergencies. Just just a brief aperçu, and I'm going to talk about the worst format emergency I ever had, which involved Mel C., Oh, okay. Look <laughs> so we've got Henry Kissinger and Mel C coming up. They've worked together before, of course. Of course they have. Um, right, let's start with Marvel. Marvel is in a, quite a bit of trouble, which seems absolutely extraordinary in many ways because this is a cinematic universe that basically sort of launched in 2008. It's pulled in $33 billion. 40 billion in merchandise, because let's not forget these things really need to shift plastic. That is a big part of their job. But today, as we're recording this on a Monday, today in New York, the trial for domestic violence starts of Jonathan Majors, who was slated and indeed has been already unveiled and starred in one movie as their big villain for phases five and phases six. Bear in mind, they talk, Marvel talks about things in terms of five-year plans, rather like some of the great monsters of the 20th century, but I'm here for it. I digress. I, so I yes, digress. So we started with phase one in 2008, been through the first four phases, we're about to start phase we've, five. We've s- s- technically started phase five. Did, and, you, did you notice at home we technically started yeah. phase five? I should say at this point that the reason I've been fully immersed in Marvel uh, in the past couple of years is I'm writing on an HBO comedy which is set behind the scenes on a superhero franchise movie. They have been masterminded really by one man, a guy called Kevin Feige, who's the sort of president of Marvel Studios. They start in 2008. Bear in mind, they don't have very good superheroes they have like second string (laughs) now they seem like the biggest thing in the world the Avengers but at the time you know Thor Iron Man these are not Superman they're not Batman they actually do own Spider-Man but they've licensed it to Sony so they can't even use Spider-Man but 
But what they do, I think, what's so successful with Marvel films is that they've eliminated sort of endings. So you get a beginning and middle, and then there's a new beginning, and each film begets another film. And instead of putting out one film a year, they were putting out three a year, which fans felt like they had to watch in order to understand all the different plot lines and kind of interrelations. And it's become this huge sort of sprawling thing, which for a long time was unbelievably successful. Well, these franchises have really taken over Hollywood. There has never been a more successful... I mean, it's extraordinary, the universe that they've created. And there is a string of genuinely brilliant films as well. So it's not just they found some IP and they've sort of dressed actors up in costumes. They've made some brilliant films. Iron Man was a brilliant film. Iron Man 3, that's my favourite. There are some <laughs> wonderful films and they go into comedy, they go into, you know, they go into all sorts of different areas. So it's an extraordinary thing that they've created, which looked like it wasn't coming off the tracks, but you think now maybe the wheels are coming off. I don't think the wheels are coming off. And obviously reports of their death, wildly exaggerated. They are still massively successful. But what they have got is a serious problem with what people are talking about a lot at the moment, which is superhero fatigue. I, I know you say they've gone into comedy, they've gone into these other genres. I don't believe they have, actually. I'm rather less of an evangelist than you. What they have is superhero movies. Everyone's saying, I, Kevin Feige sometimes says, you know, we have all the genres. We have a, fe- you know, we have a female feminist legal drama. I'm like, is that She-Hulk? You haven't. You've got, you've got a really bad superhero series that's on streaming. I haven't seen She-Hulk. Is that is I, She-Hulk I, I've a lawyer? I've seen things you wouldn't believe. Yeah. I really have seen things. I've seen every episode of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Okay, so l- let me tell you, I've gone. I am a completist. However, what? As you say, as you rightly say, what is the star is the IP, is the brand. And fans have come back and back to the cinema for the brand. And one of the sort of, I think, upsetting things that that means is that people don't really go to the movies for movie stars anymore. You go to see the brand. You've, you know, as Marvel will show you, uh, three guys can play Spider-Man even in one movie. You know, tell me, what is a Tom Holland movie other than, I hate to say it, a bomb? If it's out, if he's not wearing the suit, they don't do well. And I mean, even the same with someone like Jennifer Lawrence, who when she's in a franchise, the movies perform very well. But otherwise, it's hit and miss and it's more miss than hit. But isn't that good? Isn't that the producers and the writers making the hits rather than actors? That's well, what I don't I've, know. That's what I'm I've rather a romantic. I, I want to be, I want movie stars to open movies. And I don't really want the sort of greatest actors of their generations to be stuck in these properties where they're kind of having to make these things do an awful lot of kind of heavy lifting and you have to say oh I'm you know we're exploring really interesting themes of I don't know colonialism or um, anti-imperialism all this it's like are you really I mean I honestly feel I'm watching a superhero movie and we used to have lots of films that did that we had films that actually did that rather than did it wearing a cape and now the problem is, is that there's nothing left. There's no room for it. The mid-budget film yes, has been killed gone. by these things. Everyone feels they need a universe. Um, and so obviously in the summer, you, you all saw Mattel's Barbie. I mean, that is a toy movie. I personally really liked it and so did lots of other people. But it is a toy movie. Greta Gerwig was m- working for Mattel. Mattel have some extraordinary other properties in their burgeoning universe. Lena Dunham's Polly Pocket movie. I know you're thinking that's a joke, but it's actually real. Daniel Kaluuya's um, that Barney the Purple Dinosaur movie. No, come on. I'm not. I'm is not this, joking. Is this one of those ones where you give me three and one? And one of them is one true. Of them's I'm true. afraid they're all true, Richard. <laughs> they're all true. And when they, I mean, when they first announced that Barney the Purple Dinosaur movie, they said, "Yeah, it's going to be very surrealistic, quite dark, quite A24." Anyway, and of course, they have now course corrected, and they've done. They've said it will not be an odd movie. <laughs> 
So just in case anyone thought they might be getting something quite dark and surrealistic with the Barney the Purple Dinosaur movie, they they won't be. So a few. I might. I might. I, I yeah. worried it was going to be a bit Mike Lee. <laughs> Genuinely, I will seed fund that. We'll, put, we'll get the. Well, he, uh, may, he may end up directing one of these things for. Uh, I'm joking, of course, but the, actually, young directors, that's the sad thing that has happened as well. They call it the Sundance to Spandex Pipeline. And they get these really hot young directors. You've had some indie hits, and they grab you at Sundance and say, We'd love to see your take on whatever property in the franchise they're being given. Of course, what they really mean is that. They don't want to see your take at all. They want to use your indie cred and they want you to make an exact copy of other Marvel movies. You know, and so someone like Edgar Wright, who directed Shaun of the Dead, Hot Files, all those sort of things, actually had to exit and not do Ant-Man anymore because they say they want an Edgar Wright movie, but they don't. They want a Marvel movie. So you said you said can't watch it as well. So Edgar was saying recently, he said he, he thinks that possibly they're releasing these things too Close to each other, which I think they are because they have so many different superheroes that if they release one Ant-Man every three years, you know, they're also releasing, you know, uh, an Iron Man. They're also releasing Avengers. So I think it's become like EastEnders. I think the storylines now are so convoluted that you go, I I worry I go into one uh, and I think, oh, oh, where's Doc Cotton? She's not here. You know, and who's this new, who are the, I don't even know who the Brannings are, let let alone the the new cousin who's come along. You've got no heritage. Uh, And I think, but I I think it's like that. I think it's slightly, my son is encyclopedic. So, you know, he will know absolutely, he'll go, Thanos is doing that because of what happened like five movies ago and what's going to happen in four movies' time. And I'm like, oh, you mean like when Dirty Den came back from the dead when they pushed him in the canal? Uh, so I think it's got too confusing. And I think Edgar is right that they, there's so many of them. If you look at Grand Theft Auto and the trailer just launched this week, the trailer just launched yeah. this week and people went insane. And that's because it's been 10 years since the last Grand Theft Auto. That's made $30 billion, Grand Theft Auto. So they're doing all right for themselves, and they're doing one every 10 years. Imagine if Marvel did that. That'd be amazing. Yeah. They'd still make money. In the meantime, we could have lots of lovely indie films that really were about colonialism and about you know um, uh, feminism in the legal industry. Uh, and you know, every 10 years, we go, oh, great. We get Robert Downey Jr.'s back in his suit. The question now is, where do they go? For people who say they plan everything meticulously... The Jonathan Majors trial that is happening today, um, which is obviously a pretty awful story, however it shakes down, there's also a a report of domestic violence coming from the London police from while he was over here. And I cannot see a way back for him, although they have not said that yet. They've never been in these sort of territories before. Do they recast it? Do they replace it? Some people are saying with Doctor Doom, a much better character anyway, they say, the fans. Uh, The fandom is another horse you have to ride the thing the thing i would do is is my solution to anything in in hollywood paul mescal paul Me- don't he's you think? the answer is he that's kang him paul mescal as, as kang okay yeah, that, yeah that's but well that's honestly, a suggestion who's complaining well i tell you what the fans will complain because they complain about everything they are it's quite a lot managing the fandom that's like pointless whenever we change the rules is on it? pointless people go crazy for a couple of weeks and then they're fine if they introduce paul mescal as the co-host on pointless people for a couple of weeks would be like oh no and then they go i really like him Wow. You know what I really like him. Marvel stands versus pointless stands. I this is a battle I would love to see. There's a film. Yes, it is. I I wonder sort of in another way why they became so popular at the time they did. I was looking back at the history of cosplay the other day and cosplay oh, yeah. comes up. Uh, cosplay gets really big in Japan right after the, the Japanese financial crisis in 1991 and it people retreat for obviously there's been huge institutional failure and people young people retreat from a world of sort of uncertainty and 
I guess, kind of structural failure into this kind of Manichaean world where things are good and evil and things are very simple. But it's also allied to a real aromanticism and it's very mm. sort of non-erotic and it's very almost childlike and infantilized. And then I look back at when Iron Man was released and becomes this massive hit and it's 2008, the global financial crisis in 2008. And I wonder if there's something similar that people have retreated into these quite simplistic worlds where someone is coming to save you in a world where we know that the institutions consistently fail us. Well, you know, the biggest franchise of all in the whole world by a mile, bigger than the MCU, bigger than Star Wars, bigger than any of that stuff, bigger than Call of Duty, the biggest one in the whole world by almost double is Pokemon. You know, the Pokemon universe. And that's this is exactly, it's exactly what you're talking about. Did you know what I think you thought you were going to say? Oh no, what? The Bible. Yeah, yeah. Because... Do you know what, Marina? It's interesting you're talking that because I know a superhero. There are people trying what... to make the Bible the Bible into a franchise. Oh, that would go crazy. They're like, great. This it's not even copyright. This is IP. Yeah. So uh, this is this is IP out there for uh, out there for the exploitation. I mean, there's a lot of money in that. <laughs> Isn't there the Bible franchise? Yeah. I mean, it could be huge. I mean, I, there are those kind of quite far right Christian films that do quite well that are sort of yeah. siloed off in which we should do a deep dive on at some point really interesting the actors that are involved in those and they're kind of siloed off in um, a part of the world that you don't necessarily see if you perhaps like you and me are not interested in those particular things <laughs> hey, but they're really hey, big business I'm interested you're, you're interested in seeing what Kevin Sorbo is doing now are you Cause, yeah of course oh, I yeah. am because I'm interested in what Christ is up to yeah <laughs> You know, and what the former us. star of Hercules is up to. Exactly I mean, that. You, that is right in the centre of your Venn diagram in that case. I mean, literally, when I approached Goalhanger first, it was I wanted to do The Rest is Christ. <laughs> and I want to do it with Kevin Sorbo. Yes, please. Can I ask one question, which, yes. which is this? I always think that culture is a pendulum and you swing so far one way and when you get to the very end of the pendulum, it swings back. Do you think it's possible um, with production getting slightly cheaper, certainly with actors getting cheaper because the star system has broken down a bit, that we might be ushering in a, another golden age of Hollywood where we can start making mid-budget movies and lower-budget movies and story movies. Do you think that Marvel, when it finally does fizzle out, will actually lead into have a vacuum which will be filled with meaning and romanticism and all of these things? God, I mean, I'd really love to think so. I think times are really tough for theatrical release. For movies that you actually see in cinema, times are really hard. Um, and very few things make money in cinema. Horror still makes money in cinema, yes. which I kind of love, which is a really interesting story. Five Nights at Freddy's, yeah. brilliantly. I mean, amazing. it's extraordinary the amount of quite low-budget horror films that do make money yep. in the cinema and are still out there kind of keeping the lights on. Uh, family, to some extent, makes money, in, in, but it can be very hit and, hit and miss. Yeah, I would love to see a return to... Sounds ridiculous. Sixty million dollar movies, which um, explore all sorts of interesting questions, and which are—I mean—the other funny thing about it is—is is, are they capable of winning awards? All movie, all movie studios want awards, and Kevin Feige was so happy when Black Panther got their Oscar nomination, and maybe felt like, oh, now we're get, now we're being taken mm. seriously in all our movies. But what else are you ever going to nominate? Black, Pan Black Panther was a good movie, but there are so many other ones that are complete dross, and they're never going to get nominated. But then you have this completely absurd situation where the awards circuit is movies that no one goes and watches. I mean, these That's things true. fall off the screen. I was looking at the Oscar contenders this year and it was like, nope, nope, nope. no, wow, no. I mean, I hadn't heard of any of them. If you were in a position where you were about to make a film about four pensioners solving crime, um, would you be confident or not confident about the box office? 
I, you know what? It's based on one of my favourite entertainment properties, Richard, <laughs> The Thursday Murder of Love. So I'm yeah. pretty sure that the movie based on your book very much, be... very much the Pokemon of its day. Um, so yeah, Marvel. I, honestly, th- I think they've done brilliant things. I think they've done some extraordinary things. I think there's too much of them. I have lost the thread, and I'm hoping that at some point the huge amount of money that's gone into that can spread out amongst Hollywood and we can have another sort of five or ten years of just great movies again. Trickle-down economics. Trickle-down. When has it ever worked? But yes. (laughs) When has it ever failed? (laughs) Uh, Let's take a quick break, and when we're coming back, uh, we're talking about Ronnie, Robbie, and Bex. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to The Rest is Entertainment. Uh, I want to talk about three documentaries, and I've lumped them together because they're all about men, three men who were born within 18 months of each other, uh, all working-class lads, all fit in a game of, uh, of shag, marry, kill. It would be shag, shag, shag with these threes, I think. And it's, and it's the documentaries on Robbie Williams, David Beckham, and Ronnie O'Sullivan. Now, you've seen all three. I've seen all three. We I have. I'm afraid there's them. an avoid in there for me. But, uh, oh, that's good. <laughs> yes. Well, let's start with what I think will be your avoid, because uh, I, th- I think it's creatively the most interesting, which is the Robbie Williams documentary. So Robbie Williams documentary, it's that classic thing now of it's all archive. But what we also have is, is, is this sort of goggle box thing, which now comes into everything, which is Robbie Williams watching the archive himself. So the only footage we've got is stuff that happened at the time. And we've got Robbie talking about it. And people, I think, have found him quite solipsistic in it. And I think the reason for that is he is able to comment on everything that happened, whereas nobody else is. I wondered if there was anyone left who would speak up for him. I really got that impression. Can I just say, he also does this, commenting on the footage, he is sitting there in a vest and his pants in in bed most of the time. Um, He's pretty good on talking about his self-loathing but I think he's rather quiet on his self-love which I've I have to say Sean quite heavily through for me that's the problem I think no one else gets a word in so there's various moments he breaks up with Guy Chambers who he had this incredible songwriting partnership with and you watch them slightly fall apart and all you get is Robbie sort of it's it's quite unpleasant and you think oh my god they must absolutely hate each other and you look into it actually they started working together again but all it would take is for Guy Chambers to go yeah that was that was a difficult time for us so you have that he gets back with take that 
which to me is a very moving moment. And they write The Flood, which is the greatest Robbie Williams song of all time, probably the greatest Gary Barlow song of all time as well. Um, big talk. But it is. I, I, listen, I can't think, think of what would beat it. So he gets back with them, and you think this is very moving. So a lot of the film is about how bitter he was left by leaving Take That. And suddenly you think, oh, this is lovely, the sort of therapy of getting back together with the boys. But because you just have him talking about it, he doesn't really talk about it a great deal. And you don't have Gary or Mark saying, do you know what, it was so lovely to have him back in because all you're seeing is archive. But why don't you have that? Is it that they weren't turned out for him or that he won't even give them one second of the airtime? Because the other two documentaries, which we won't get onto yet, but we are going to talk about, you can't move for people who want yes. to talk about Ronnie O'Sullivan and you can't move for people who want to talk about David Beckham. And I was left feeling, as Robbie paced his various mansions, that he either didn't want them to speak or else they didn't really want much to either. I think it's a directorial choice and I think it's one that served him ill. So it's all going to be archive. Great, we get that. Uh, but Robbie, you're going to be watching the archive. So that's the creative proposition there because the archive is brilliant. There's yeah, some the archive's great incredible. stuff of Robbie when he's very young. And you realise, by the way, how open he always was about his struggles. How, you know, he's being interviewed by people and he's, he's literally telling, he's telling them, them. yeah, He's telling them, I'm, I'm, I'm well. I'm ill, I'm unhappy. Like, and they're going, oh, but could you say something about looking forward to the gig as well? That, that stuff is really mesmerising. Yeah. Is It's yeah. like a kind of um, like a sort of horror movie where someone is telling everyone and no one can yeah. hear them. It's <laughs> yeah. re- it is really extraordinary. Yeah. And you go back and look and think, gosh, you know, I probably watched some of those interviews on telly while they were happening. Yeah, and you're going, oh, Robbie, oh, he's had a drink, that yeah. one, hasn't he? And you think, oh, no, he was, you know, he was, he, he was clearly um, suffering. But that's the pitch. And once you say that, look, it's just you watching this stuff. So, you know, there will be other voices in it, but, you know, it's like Jerry Hallowell is in it because there's lots of lovely home video of her. Guy Chambers is in it, but all through archive. You can't then say, oh, why don't we get Guy to do a piece to camera? Because that's not the style of the film. There's no there's no space for that. There's also, interestingly, in the Robbie thing, he talks about a gig at, at Round Hay Park in Leeds, and he says and this was the real low point, and, you know, this is where it all fell apart. But he finds himself incapable of watching it. He, he said, I can't watch this. So they fast forward through it. So you are not ever told what happened. So all the way through this thing, which feels clever, which is it's just archive and Robbie's watching it, it stops the storytelling. You don't hear from his parents. You don't see his parents at any point. Presumably there's no archive. And you think, I can't really get a full picture of you unless I know who they are and where, where they were at various points. I think there's a much better documentary to be made. I get why they made it that way, and it sounds great. But the real star, and she appears about three or four times, is Robbie's daughter, who comes in occasionally, <laughs> Robbie's in his vest, that's looking so miserable, and his daughter comes in and is so delightful. What are you watching, Daddy? And he goes, I'm afraid I'm watching a real low point of my life. You're going to have to go into the other room. She goes, oh, come on, can I watch? And he goes, no, you can watch when you're older, but at the moment, yeah, I'm afraid this is, uh, you know, this, this is really bad for Daddy. And she gives him a big cuddle, and off she goes, and there's clearly love there. It's the only time in the whole film you see genuine love, and it's delightful to see. But, yeah, I think he's ill-served by the format of it, whereas Beckham, he obviously had complete control over his documentary and it is just brilliant. Well, this is this is the one that's made by Fisher Stevens, who some of our listeners may know better as he's a brilliant documentary maker, but you may know him better as Hugo from Succession. And it's really funny, when I was like talking to some of the Succession writers and one of the big questions they kept being asked when the final episode of the show aired was like, oh my God, would you ever do a spin-off series? And for a joke, they were always like, yeah, only one with Hugo though, because they all loved Hugo so much. They loved Fisher Stevens, thought he's a fantastic guy in real life. Um, and he, uh, he, is, he is the maker of this documentary commissioned by its subject. Although yeah. Beckham now has a new... Uh, 
he has a new brand manager. He was with Simon Fuller for many years, and he's got this guy called uh, Jamie Salter, who's got this big, big company called Authentic Brands. He's the one who's driven this particular project. Anyway, carry on. No, I think it's, it's, it's exactly that. It's so prestige, and as you say, it's the exact opposite of Robbie in that everybody wants to talk about him. You know, every single person from the world of football, from the world, I mean, everybody wants to chat about him. Every single story in it, you know, if you're a sports fan, you know, you know that he scored from the halfway line for Man United. You know the stuff that happened with England. You know, you know him going to uh, America before he should have done. But it's it's so genuinely compelling to watch all that and watch him. So they yeah. have him watching which is beautiful, but then they've got Gary Neville talking. Yeah. And you think that's what Robbie needed. You know, he, need, yes. he needed Jonathan Wilkes to come in and, and say, say something about him. What I find really fascinating about it is that after all this money and all these years and all the sort of dramas and scandals, they still love being famous and they really, really want to be famous and to stay famous, which is why they are doing this. And I find that there's something quite sort of unapologetic and very American about that. They're not, they're not very English at all. They're not. But it's fascinating because Robbie is the same. Fame, yes. fame is killing him. But the second you see him, there's a brilliant bit where he goes to America. So he's, he's literally, you see a whole load and he's like massive, like in Europe and in England and everybody loves him and it's, it's upsetting him, right? It's too much for him, right? He's got, there's no privacy, you know. He, and then he goes to America where they don't know him. And that absolutely kills him. People sometimes call LA rehab for famous people because everybody's famous. Yeah, then... but it's but it's but he 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 can't handle either of yeah. either of the bits. He he has to be famous and he can't be famous. I mean, he must have expensive therapy, Robbie. Listen, Rubox was not a great album, but listen, some you know sometimes we do stuff that's not great. You know, but every single time he fails, it kills him. And then he yeah. comes back and does the flood with Gary Barlow, and that to me would be that's the end of the movie for me. But yeah, yes, that should have been. We like go out, like credits over the flood. If we come on to Ronnie O'Sullivan, which wow. I suppose I'd have to say the waning of a sport, because can you just give us a sense of how big snooker was in the eighties? Yeah, yeah. So snooker was snooker was enormous and had a sort of gradual decline, and they brought back Barry Hearn about ten fifteen years ago, and actually it's sort of in rather rude health again because it's huge in China. Yes. Okay, that's it. I mean, properly huge in China. Well, they're the, all going off to play exhibition matches, aren't they? Like, all the time, for a lot of money. And, you know, the big, circuit. The, the big champ... I was watching the UK Championship this week because my wife Ingrid is off filming a serial killer drama for Sky. So I had I had some snooker time. <laughs> uh, and the final of that was Ronnie against Ding Junhui. Yeah. And that would have been a lot of people watching and a, and a lot of money up for grabs. So snooker, I, th I think the... The thought is, oh, it's, it's had its day, its heyday was a long time ago and, you know, it's disappeared. And it sort of hasn't, it did disappear and now it's, um, now it's back. For poor Ronnie, who all he wants to do really is get out of snooker, the money, they keep bringing him back in because there's, there's stuff for him. So that documentary, it's so, it's much lower budget than the other two. The producer is David Beckham's Studio 99 company. There you go. Mogul. You see, it all ties Mogul. in. And again, there's a lot of Ronnie lying on his bed looking up at camera. But he's very, very open in a way the other two aren't. And Ronnie's always been open. And he talks about his father. He went to prison for um, murder. He talks about his battles with drugs. He talks about his battles with authorities. Uh, and because it's snooker, which in one way feels very low stakes, but in another way is sort of so exacting you know, to, 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 to knock a snooker ball into a hole is almost oh impossible. You're watching this stuff. It yeah. is like a sort of sacred geometry. It is absolutely extraordinary. You could stand up 
out of your seat just watching some of the clips in this. Yeah. You, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, and it's interesting, sort of Stephen Hendry saying, I, you know, I think he's actually the greatest sportsman ever to have lived in any sport. Yes, exactly. And, yeah, I think, uh, Steve, it might be a bit much, but yeah, I hear you. He's certainly good at snooker. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's of all these three yeah. subjects, he's the only one who is the best to have ever done it. Absolutely, at the top of a game. And of a game where, where you, you can't make Robbie Williams or David Beckham money, but you can make good money. But snooker desperately needs Ronnie. Of course. And always, I mean, he's so, you know, it's like, like Blondie needs Debbie Harry. It's like there is there is no snooker without um, Ronnie. And so they're so desperate for him to stay in the game. And every tournament he just goes, I think that might be it for me. I think I'm done. You know, I'm so bored with it. And then he goes and sees uh, Steve Peters, his psychologist. Uh, and Steve goes, well, maybe just maybe just sort of do one more, Ronnie. And he goes, oh, I'll do one more. And and, and he goes back in, and, and every, every year he's got a new, I'm just going to play for fun now. He says, oh, I'm just going to play to stop other people winning titles now. Oh, I'm just going to play because I'm bored. I just want something to do. And he's never, ever going to find peace with this game, ever. There is a moment at the end of the Ronnie documentary that I, might be one of the most tragic things I've ever seen in any documentary. I mean, right at the very, very end, you just hear he's picked up on his mic talking to um, uh, his family. And it's genuinely... As a piece of television, I love it because it's completely unvarnished. I'm sure Ronnie had, you know, final approval on it, but I, like he cares, you know. He, he couldn't bet. When he saw it played back, he just said, oh, I think I better try and give up. I don't think this has made me happy at all, <laughs> seeing it set out like that. I know. The, the talking heads who, who were talking about him are Ronnie Wood and Damien Hurst. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> okay. I don't know about duty of care, yeah. but again, they clearly adore him. This moment is so powerful. Absolutely no spoilers because you must watch the documentary. But it's such a mood, isn't it? That you see him in these sort of in hotel ballrooms in Llandudno or having his breakfast in these little seaside hotels where the piers are falling into the sea yeah. um, on the phone to people back home saying, well, if I get beat, I'll come home. Otherwise, I'm quite enjoying it here. It's just me and the mobility scooters. And he's, you know, it's a, it's, uh, you sort of get the sense of a world slipping into the sea, really. I've, I found it really elegiac in a lot of ways. And a documentary, whatever you do with a documentary, however much control you you have over it, people will see who you are. And I think you see Robbie, Beckham, and O'Sullivan in slightly different ways. After this, I was, again, watching the final of the snooker last night. You can't watch him play and the expression on his face without thinking of that documentary and the stuff he talks about and the stuff he talks about during games. And it, it, it just makes him... It's like, you know, Drive to Survive has, has kind of made Formula One. It was, this, I was going to say that a lot of these documentaries are because the streamers don't have sport um obviously netflix doesn't have any sport so they have to have quite a lot of sports adjacent content and they've got uh beckham they've got drive to survive which we must talk about in, in more in full mm. on another occasion can i pitch something to netflix right now please do um <laughs> drive to survive but for darts <gasps> huge i mean it would be insane i don't know why I, they haven't done it because every, it's Why are you doing this? They greenlight anything. I mean, just <laughs> there's a South Park episode where it's just a, like a huge call centre and it's Netflix and it's just people pick up the phone and go, yeah, that's a green light, green light, green <laughs> So, yes, I'm sure you could get that green light. But Richard. that would be amazing. And then the, you, could, you could probably get the right stuff. I mean, dance is huge. Again, Barry yes. Hearn. Barry Hearn is a genius. But I would just, I would absolutely, yeah, I would love to watch, you know, Michael Van Gerwen at home. Or, you know, just these... these, these The dance players, their back, the backstories yeah. and the home stories are always absolutely exceptional. Michael All Bully Boy Smith, you know, I'd, I'd love to see it. Best ever dance nickname uh, was uh, Mark Frost, whose nickname was Frosty the Throw Man. <laughs> but anyway, those three documentaries, I really recommend... All three of them. They're genuinely, you, you come out of them with an opinion. But I think the person who you want to 
hold close to you after watching all three of them is Ronnie. Okay, third item on this week's podcast. And the most unusual. Is uh, Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger, uh, diplomat, statesman, and a number of other things besides, has died aged 100. Now, Kissinger is an extraordinary figure. As a child in a classroom, he remembered hearing that Hitler had been elected chancellor in Germany. His family managed to flee, uh, and he rose to wielding immense power under Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. Heard of him. Uh, <laughs> So he was a diplomatic and strategic mastermind, but he also um, embarked on a number of foreign policy gambits, which were secretive bombing campaigns and many acts which were almost inarguably war crimes. But we'll leave putting him into those perspectives to our colleagues on the West is politics, all the rest is history. Oh, they'll love it. Because our business is today, I think, is with one of the other major drives of his life, which was he was a huge star fucker, wasn't he, Richard? Mm, yeah, he really, which, which I didn't know about. He loved celebrities, and strangely, given his political activities, celebrities couldn't help loving him. There's a sort of fantastic article in The Hollywood Reporter that came out after um, he died, which pulled together some of this. I mean, can I just take the listeners back to 1972, right? Oh, could so, you? The, you're like the Alan, Godfa- you're Alan Fluff Freeman. I am. The Godfather is about to come out and Bob Evans, who is a big producer at Paramount and actually the, his book, The Kid Stays in the Picture, is one of it's a brilliant book. the great yeah, yeah. Hollywood books. Anyway, but US casualties in Vietnam have hit 60,000. It's all Kissinger has prolonged and widened the war. But anyway, The Godfather's coming out and Marlon Brando pulls out of the premiere and Bob Evans thinks, I need a really big star. I tell you what, I will go to Henry Kissinger. Kissinger, by the way, had just been voted in a poll of Playboy bunnies, top of the list of men I would like to go out on a date with. I mean... He is Nixon's national security advisor at the time. Anyway, um, and so um, Bob Evans gets him to come. Got lots of stars already at the premiere, like all the stars of The Godfather, apart from Brando, Jack Nicholson, Ali McGraw, and Time magazine says the superstar was Henry Kissinger. So many people wanted to be seen talking to the president's national security advisor that the curtain was delayed for 15 minutes at The Godfather. I mean, he had affairs with Jean-Jacques Gabor, with Liv Ullman, with all sorts of uh, actresses, there's there's a bit where they say you know, he he liked an unknown actress is what he really liked. I was reading he, he was uh, he, he he dated a stunt woman, uh, Larda St Edmund, and I thought oh, I'm going to have a look at her, and she's amazing. She was she was ballet dancing on Broadway at twelve, Oops. went to Hollywood, became a go go dancer on a, on a on a TV show in the sixties. Bert Reynolds said to her, "You should become a stunt woman." Uh, she became the uh, the highest paid stunt woman in Hollywood. She crash tested the first airbags. Oh my gosh! Yeah, she made she got twenty five thousand dollar payout because she, she broke both her ankles oh. testing the first ever airbags. She's now seventy six years old and she's a personal trainer. So if wow. somebody if somebody should live to one hundred, I would say Lana St. Edmund. But yeah, Kissinger was was uh, was was doinking everybody. And I must say that even as late as, I mean, really, I remember not so much longer than probably about 15 years ago covering the story when Angelina Jolie was invited to join the Council of Foreign Relations, which is an extremely sort of serious US think tank, foreign policy think tank, of which Henry Kissinger was obviously one of the leading lights. And he said, well, you see, I'm doing this. this, I'm doing this. It's my only chance to get to meet Angelina Jolie. And it felt like the sort of blackest of satires because you thought, I mean, what have they got in common? She's just adopted a Cambodian orphan and he certainly created a few of them. And you, 
I have to say that reading over some of the stuff that he did in his life, there's just no modern analogue of that. I just think of the idea that, you know, having a secretary of, having a national security advisor, imagine sort of Christopher Nolan this summer ringing up Jake Sullivan, President Biden's national security advisor. I really need you to sprinkle a little bit of stardust on my premier. Well, there was, I mean, our version of it in the UK would be Lemba Opic and uh, Gabriella from the Cheeky Girls. Our sadly sundered partnership now, of course. Yes, like many of his partnerships. Yes. I was, yeah, he's, he's an interesting one. Lembert. Including with the electorate, yes. Yeah, I saw he got kicked out of the Lib Dems, Lemba Opic. Oh my goodness, that's for, so hard. Uh, that is really that's hard. That's really hard. Well, if I tell you what he did, uh, he did a talk at the Conservative Party conference called How to Stop the Lib Dems. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that would do it, right? That would do it. But yeah, we don't really have it. David Lammy and June Sarpong. No. That's about as glamorous, yeah, it's it's... About as, glamorous as we've got, isn't it? Kissinger, essentially, he sowed his oats across all of Hollywood in the in, He sort in of the borrowed, the, uh, borrowed the tools of the celebrities he rubbed up against to, to create in, in his post-politics life. He became a sort of unbelievable self-publicist and a, a controller and a sort of director of his own comms. I mean, I want to say the Taylor Swift of international diplomacy, he but is the Taylor before Swift of I say that, why yeah. don't we end this item? Yeah, I think we'll leave it to uh, the rest is politics and history to really contextualise him. But um, yeah, he famously said power is an aphrodisiac. Uh, I, I did the not. Greatest uh, aphrodisiac. Yeah, exactly. I didn't realise that was his hinge profile, but, uh, <laughs> but but clearly it was. Henry Kissinger, of course, the other terribly sad death this week, Shane McGowan. Next week, we're going to talk about um, the race for Christmas number one, because I'm, I'm obsessed with that sort of thing. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about Shane then. Recommendations this week. Uh, well, firstly, Squid Game, the final episode is dropping this week. We talked about it last week. Absolutely loved it. Um, by the way, we talked about how wonderful Studio Lambert, the makers are. It's also made by The Garden, John Hay and the gang there, who make 24 Hours in Police Custody, which might be the greatest television programme ever made. And that is back this week. More people on grainy cameras saying no comment for an hour and a half. which is it's, But it's hypnotic. I absolutely love it. Of all of those shows, it's very much the best ones made by The Garden. Um, one thing I'm going to recommend... This is a weird one. Last week we were talking about Jeff Bezos uh, and I sent you this video. There's a, an Irish comedian and artist called Bobby Fingers and he's done, this is hard, he's got to set, up, set aside half an hour, he's done a half hour video about him making and sculpting a model of Jeff Bezos' face and then turning it into a boat. And if that sounds barking, it starts off barking, it gets, it gets weirder and weirder and weirder, but it's so beautifully and elegantly made and so funny. So if you Google Bobby Fingers, careful, uh, and it's uh, a face made out of Jeff Bezos' boat, that is my big recommendation for this week. My big recommendation is it's back. It is Slow Horses on oh. Apple. And it is an absolute, if you haven't caught this, it's absolutely brilliant. This is the third season. Gary Oldman stars as Jackson Lamb, the sort of maestro of a band of down at heel and down on their luck spies. Yes, all the spies you get sort of thrown out of the uh, of the big shiny of, offices. Of, of the proper service. Yeah. They uh, And uh, they work in a place called Slough House. It is uh, based on the books by uh, Mick Heron and show run by a great friend of mine who is absolutely brilliant, Will Smith, former Veep. Not that Will Smith. Not that Will Smith. Um, and it is, I can't recommend it enough. It is a, it's such... It's, yeah, and the books as well. Mick Heron's books are... Absolutely oh, terrific. terrific. But yeah, so horse is the show. Yeah, it's and start at season one if you haven't seen season yes. one and, and, and work your way through. Oh, super quickly, I was going to do my former emergency. So Nigel Harmon pulled out strictly this week and and it's at the start of a series it's fine because you build in a little buffer in a series, you know, you can get rid of two people one week or you can have a week where people don't uh, don't leave. But right at the end there's only five people left. So they've got a whole show. There's only five dancers in it. Now there's only four dancers in it. So they've got to fill about 12 minutes there. They've got a result show on Sunday, 
which 10 minutes of which is the dance off and the voting stuff. So they've got to fill that. So I, I, I watched it. They filled it very well. You know, scores are carrying over the next week. But all the way through, I was thinking those poor producers. And you could see that the VTs were all extended by about 30 seconds each. And the judges were talking a little bit longer than they normally were. Uh, and on the results show, you know, they were showing some stuff from uh, from It Takes Two from across the week. You think you don't normally show this, do you? And Craig's talking a lot more. But it's those things that sometimes if you're doing a live show that happen. The worst one that ever happened to me, we did a show called The Games for Channel 4. Yes, I remember that. Oh my God, it was such fun, which is celebrities doing sports. We did it live. Um, we're up in Sheffield, which is where we filmed all of that, and we would do, the, 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 the female celebrities were doing judo on one particular day. Okay, listen, it was stupid. Uh, and um, we're doing the heats in the afternoon, and Mel C is fighting against Azra Akin, and I don't need to tell you, that's Miss World. And they're doing the heats, and we're, we're, we're live that evening. Anyway, Miss World throws Mel C, she breaks her leg. It was like harrowing. She's screaming. So all the other celebrities, there's Gail Porter, there's Josie Darby, all sorts of people, were like, oh, no. And they were going, we're not going to go on this evening. There's no way we're too, that was that was too traumatic for us. And, you know, so Mel's off at hospital and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and we think, oh, no, what do we do here? And we had a, a, a the series producer, a woman called Karen Smith, who now runs a company called Tuesday's Child. who made all sorts of brilliant shows. Karen is absolutely no nonsense. She says, let me go talk to them. So she goes off, comes back five minutes later, goes, yeah, everyone's fine to fight this evening. And I'm like, wow, how did you do that? She never told us. She's just one of those people who just went in and said, yeah, everyone's cool. And they did. You, you wouldn't have known. But yeah, that was uh, a Mel C, by the way, who I've met many times since, who was one of the w- most wonderful people you could meet. And, you know, because it, it, it affected her for like a year. She had to call off a tour and stuff like that. But uh, those moments where you think, oh, my goodness, how are we? There's, there was a few more on the games because that was live and it was uh, all sorts of trouble. But, yeah, Miss World breaking Mel C's leg was the one, one, one of the biggest ones for me. That That's my Nigel Harmon. Plunging the show into chaos in the parlance of the newspapers. Plunging the show into chaos. Yes, yeah, show bosses have revealed. Yeah, yeah. exactly. We've covered a lot today, haven't we? Marvel, Ronnie. Kissinger. Kissinger. Melcy. It's been, it's been all good. Shall we do the same next week? I think we should. And again, at home, if you're watching stuff, if you're reading stuff, stuff you love, do let us know. Uh, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. 
He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.